<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. It's Friday, August 14, 2020. As you may have guessed, this isn't Bill Press. This is Chris Liu. Bill is taking some well-deserved time off, and I'm honored that Bill has asked me to guest host this week's Reporters' Roundtable. The big political news of the week is the selection of California Senator Kamala Harris to join the Democratic ticket. It's a historic set of firsts, the first African-American woman, the first Asian-American on a major party ticket. And the new Biden-Harris ticket officially did their first events together this week in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, this coming Monday, the Democratic Convention kicks off completely virtually with two hours of programming each night featuring not just Biden and Harris, but also the Obamas, Clintons, and at least one notable Republican. And the pandemic continues to surge around the country. While overall cases seem to be easing a bit, deaths continue to rise on a V-shape. Meanwhile, negotiations on another round of economic relief seem to be over for now. We have a great group of panelists for this week's political roundtable. John Bennett is Washington Bureau Chief of The Independent. You can follow him on Twitter at BennettJohnT. Good morning, John. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Lauren Burke is a writer for Black Press USA. You can follow her on lburke 7 Good morning, Lauren. Hey, good morning. And Nicholas Wu is a congressional reporter for USA Today. You can follow him at NicholasWu12. Hey, Nick. Morning, Chris. And since we're shamelessly plugging, you can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLu44. So let's dive into the issues. Let's start with the new vice presidential nominee. This week concluded months of speculation about who would serve as Joe Biden's running mate. Unlike previous years, Biden announced well in advance that his choice would be a woman. Despite the fact that Kamala Harris was always seen as a frontrunner, Team Biden managed to pull off an announcement that generated a fair amount of suspense. Let's go to a clip of Senator Harris on Wednesday talking about a relationship she had, a friendship she had with another Biden. Ever since I received Joe's call, I've been thinking, yes, about the first Biden that I really came to know. And that, of course, is one of his beloved sons, Bo. I learned quickly that Bo was the kind of guy who inspired people to be a better version of themselves. He really was the best of us. And when I would ask him, where'd you get that? He'd always talk about his dad. And I will tell you, the love that they shared was incredible to watch. Lauren, this is clearly a history-making pick. But from a political standpoint, electoral standpoint, most VP picks don't really change the trajectory of the campaign. Uh, Is there reason to think this one could? Uh, you know what? I think it does certainly add a lot of excitement to a campaign that features at its top someone who is not particularly dynamic. And of course, you know, uh, something that really has nothing to do with uh, Joe Biden. The fact that we have a, a pandemic makes it even more difficult for him to be dynamic. So uh, even though Kamala Harris uh, brings in, in play a state that the Democrats would already win, obviously, California, 
you know, I think certainly at a time where it's very hard, it's really impossible to do any in-person campaigning, having her, the, the history portion of the excitement of that, bringing out the base of the party, black women, all of that is a huge help for Joe Biden. As you can see from the other side, Donald Trump and the gang are having a great deal of trouble trying to figure out how they're going to campaign against against Kamala Harris, because there really is nothing about her that <laughs> that they can. She's actually sort of a moderate Democrat on things like, you know, justice reform and uh, <laughs> things that Republicans actually might might like. So so that does bring excitement. That does make a difference. I think it's certainly a better pick than Tim Kaine was uh, for Hillary Clinton. And it's exciting. Uh, you know, I'm glad you raised the point about uh, uh, Team Trump's efforts to try to get a handle on the new VP nominee. Uh, let's play a clip of some of the president's initial reactions. And now you have a, a sort of a mad woman, I, I call her, because she was so angry and so, such hatred with Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. She was the angriest of the group, and they were all angry. These are seriously ill people. Uh, John, you know, and, and the president said a lot of other things, called her nasty, horrible. What's interesting is uh, she was always seen as the front runner, uh, but the White House seems to be caught off guard a little bit in how they want to frame her. Yeah, it really was remarkable this week. Um, like you said, Senator Harris was 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 and is the front runner. She was always she kind of led this thing. If you know, we look at it like, like a horse race, like we do everything. Uh, she, she led from the time they came out of the gate uh, until they, they came around down the home stretch. She led this thing wire to wire, but the president and, and his campaign and even Kellyanne Conway, I thought a little bit, and you know she's usually ready with, with, with her sharp uh, rhetorical uh, little sound bites for, for people and issues. And I, even Kellyanne, I thought was, was a little slow to react to this and, you know, the president, it was, it was, you know, she's nasty and she, she was mean to Brett Kavanaugh. And it was basically just name calling. They, they didn't have anything substantive ready, which was just stunning. And uh, I had the, the pleasure last night of, of not being on. Uh, my shift started very early with the president yesterday morning. So I got to just sit back and, and watch his uh, coronavirus briefing last night. And you know, it's 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 disappointing, but it feels inevitable that here we are with Kamala Harris, uh, daughter of immigrants. Uh, she has brown skin, and now the president is back to birtherism. That took what two and a half days, and and here we are. Uh, now he's raising questions about whether she's she's qualified. Of course, she is. She was born in Oakland, California. Uh, she meets all the the constitutional requirements to be president or vice president. But here we are at birtherism, and it just somehow feels like this is where we were always going to end up. And it didn't take that long. Yeah, Nicholas, that was an interesting moment yesterday. And for, for the listeners that have not caught up, there was a, a piece by, a, I'll say, law professor, quote unquote, law professor in Newsweek uh, a couple of days ago, sort of with a like a, a, an, an odd and I would say probably legally incorrect view of uh, of whether Senator Harris can be president. And it is interesting that when the president was asked about this yesterday, uh, he didn't absolutely refute this. Are, are we going down this road again? And, and politically, what are the dangers of the president pushing this line? Well, I think based on the initial coverage we saw of the president's remarks yesterday, it, it really took 
this uh, viewpoint is very much a fringe one. It was, you know, like you said, it was a legal theory without a whole lot of standing that would potentially also invalidate the citizenship of millions of Americans who were themselves the children of immigrants. And so um, it, it's, it's very risky territory for the president to go down on something that's really not based in much fact and uh, is, is only dipped into by members of the fringe. Uh, let me go back, uh, Lauren. I, you know, one of the things that struck me when um, the two of them came out on uh, Wednesday was they genuinely seemed to like each other. They genuinely seemed to complement each other. There really was kind of an energy. Uh, do you foresee uh, them actually hitting the campaign trail? And if they can't, what do you think that like virtual campaigning looks like from the two of them? Well, I mean, unfortunately, it looks like uh, a bunch of boxes on the screen, like we're looking at the Brady Bunch, <laughs> you know, so the, a lot of the Biden events that have been virtual have not been exactly the most exhilarating things to come across. You know, there, I, I doubt that, you know, it's hard because with only, uh, you know, less than 90 days left and the president having absolutely no plan for uh, to deal with COVID has meant that this situation has blown up in a way um, for this fall that we probably should not have had to deal with. Maybe at the tail end, they may get a chance to go out uh, physically. Uh, and also maybe in Delaware, if they can just do some events like the one that they did yesterday where they you know, had the, the panel on, on COVID. Uh, but I don't know that they're ever going to have the retail opportunity that I think would really play to, to Senator Harris's uh, strong suit where she's out actually greeting people. So I don't know the answer to that. I, I tend to doubt it because, of course, uh, this administration has no plan for the pandemic. And so it has gotten worse and no one has been able to go out. And obviously, uh, the former vice president called for a comprehensive, you know, uh, mask policy yesterday. So I think the answer to that, unfortunately, is no. John, I know you have covered politics a long time, and this will be the you know fourth woman on a major party ticket. Uh, you know, and we could sort of hash through how the last three were treated. Uh, do you think Senator Harris will be treated as a uh, nominee in her own right, or will she always be seen as the woman nominee? I think that will always be um, part of how she's portrayed, uh, fair or not, probably. Uh, not probably. It, it, it is not fair, but uh, I, I think it's kind of baked in, if you will. Uh, I, I don't I don't think she's going to escape the fact she's a woman. I, I think, you know, I think um, to our parents generation, older voters, uh, some of them may have a problem with that. But I, I do think, you know, the longer we go here, uh, the country was the country seemed to be ready four years ago for for a woman president. Um, just a lot of people did not like uh, Hillary Clinton. I think another woman could have, another female Democrat could have beaten Donald Trump four years ago. So the, the country is ready four years ago for a, a female president, and I think uh, I think they're ready for a female vice president. Uh, Nicholas, let me end with you. Um... Uh, you know, I, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether uh, Biden gets any kind of bump out of this. Uh, but certainly, if you look within his numbers, there probably was a little bit of softness uh, among some people in the Democratic Party. Do you think this pick sort of shores up uh, and, and creates kind of that level of enthusiasm? That's for sure. I mean, as we've seen based on uh, you know vice presidential picks in the past, there's usually not a huge bump in polling 
for the presidential nominee, unless, of course, the vice presidential pick uh, backfires on them. That being said, uh, with someone like Kamala Harris, who you know, so visibly clashed with Biden on the campaign trail, uh, especially during that one viral debate moment about um, uh, school segregation and desegregation, I think this can help close the enthusiasm gap among people that were uh, bigger Kamala supporters during the campaign that might not otherwise have been as enthusiastic about a Biden presidency, be it uh, Kamala's own constituencies, energizing uh, black voters or Asian American voters too. Well, that's a, a great way now to pivot to our second topic, which is the Democratic Convention. Uh, the schedule is now set. Monday will feature Bernie Sanders, John Kasich, and Michelle Obama. On Tuesday, we'll hear from Bill Clinton, Jill Biden, and AOC. Wednesday, we'll feature Kamala Harris, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Elizabeth Warren. And on Thursday, we get Joe Biden. Uh, John, let me start with you. There's no more roll call of the states, no more balloon drops, no more funny hats. The upside <laughs> is that there's no floor protest. Um, how are you going to be covering the convention? Uh, and is this the end of conventions as we know it? Well, another upshot may be that no more funny hats, uh, <laughs> depending on how you feel about funny hats on convention floors. Uh, we're going to be covering it uh, like, like uh, I guess, most everyone else. Uh, we'll be watching from our various home offices, uh, such as they are these days. Uh, we'll be, you know, trying to reach out to sources and 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 get some reaction. Uh, it's going to be very, it's going to be very unique. Um, you know, there there you. There aren't going to be the usual things going on, uh, and we're just, you know, it, it it does feel strange to not be there this time. Uh, it, it kind of feels like you're you're really um, just disconnected from the whole thing. But but there's not much of a thing to be disconnected from right now. I mean, this this comes down to I think a referendum on Donald Trump. But but you have to look out for you know, can Joe Biden not? make a major gaffe during his speech, um, how much Clinton fatigue are people going to feel next week? So, you know, those narratives are still there, but um, you're not going to be able to, to reach out and touch people um, and go have a beer with someone and, 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 and talk for a story. So it's, it's different, but, you know, it, it, it's not unlike how we're covering any other story right now. We're, we're doing it remotely and you know, we've got a phone and, and, and email and, and, and Zoom and off we go. Uh, Lauren, what I'm, when I looked at the list of convention speakers, what struck me was all of the different parts of the Democratic Party coming together. Uh, and I'm not sure we could have foreseen this, you know, six or eight months ago when we were talking about a pro-growth convention. Uh, and then there's the unusual side of John Kasich, the former governor Republican governor of Ohio showing up. I know some people love having him on the program. Some people think his you know, views as governor were antithetical to the party's platform. What's your take broadly on this diversity of speakers coming together for Joe Biden? Uh, I think it's a, you know, I think it's the predictable group on other than the Kasich uh, and it is what you would think, uh, who you would think would be up there. And I just got an email with regard to the musical talent, which includes Billie Eilish and Leon Bridges and Common. So that's, a, you know, obviously an attempt to spice up a virtual affair that is not going to be anything like what a normal convention is like. But, you know, here we are. 
Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, to me, when I look at the speakers, there's really no one there that really, uh, you know, makes me think, wow, I, I, ooh, I can't believe that that person is there. It, it's a difficult situation for everybody. There's already been some, you know, state party virtual events over the last few months that will never be able to duplicate, obviously, an in-person event because the whole point of the convention really is the sights and sounds of the convention and being in that convention city and all that. Obviously, we know that is not going to happen, and uh, we are, you know, in this virtual world. I just think it's it's difficult. It's compounded by the fact that they have a candidate that is not particularly dynamic. But you know, uh, we do. You know, we will get a chance to see, you know, the best of what the party has can do technologically because everyone is forced into this space. And I guess we'll see what happens. You know, you see that there are some very good speakers that, that have definitely excited people before. Obviously, the former president, uh, Barack Obama, being on the schedule is an obvious one. But, you know, until we see it, we really don't know how this is going to play out. I mean, it is it is it is what it is. Uh, Nicholas, let me turn to you. I'm guessing this would have been your first convention. Uh, and I'm curious whether you're just disappointed you're not there. But, you know, from my own perspective, going to what Lauren just said, you know, I think back about 2008, and I think that the anticipated speech people wanted to see was how would Hillary Clinton get up there and, you know, speak favorably about uh, Barack Obama? You know, Bill Clinton is always kind of one that a big speaker that we look at. Uh, what are you going to be looking for? Uh, which speech are you kind of interested in? And to Lauren's point earlier, is there a danger that Joe Biden is overshadowed by these other, you know, bigger, more dynamic uh, people in his party? Well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. This would have been my very first convention. And uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit disappointed that I couldn't go this year, but obviously very grateful that we're staying safe and you know, that I have a much shorter commute time from uh, you know, my bed to my uh, desk in my apartment rather than uh, you know, schlepping out to the conventions. And I think what will be interesting to see with the speaker lineup is that you have, uh, like we've talked about, this this whole um, people from across the spectrum of both the Democratic and uh, you know some Republican Party figures too. I mean, it, it's it's very interesting to me to have uh, both say Kasich and Michael Bloomberg um, uh, in the same convention lineup as someone like Congresswoman um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Now. As for the issue of people potentially overshadowing Biden, that you know that that could be uh, something that could happen, especially since we don't have any kind of uh, actual convention space. There's no audience. It's just uh, you know whichever live streams people happen to tune into from across the country. So you know if if say someone with a much larger social following, like like uh, Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez, can can draw a larger audience. Um, you know that that could very well overshadow uh, some of the other convention speakers. Uh, John, let me go back to you for a second. I I, I often think these uh, uh, these attacks that Trump is landing on Biden or not or trying to land on Biden. I think have actually helped Biden in the sense of creating such a low bar of expectations. I mean, I think a lot of people who had not seen Biden much lately were struck when they saw him on Wednesday uh, speaking with Harris. Do you think he has the potential to benefit? I mean, he, there are going to be obviously brighter stars in the Democratic universe there. But, you mm -hmm. know, if he comes out and gives sort of a very heartfelt, emotional speech, 
I think that could surprise a lot of people. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it will. Uh, the president does this. Uh, he, he's kind of a walking double-edged sword, and a lot of times he, he plunges that sword right into his own chest or, or his own foot sometimes. Uh, and, and yeah, when you say someone's sleepy, uh, I believe he said about Biden yesterday or, the, or Wednesday that, uh, that Joe doesn't even know he's alive, which is, you know, I'm, I'm, the vice president does know that, that he's alive and among us. So when you say that over and over and, and you know, folks who don't pay attention to, to all of this like we do, they hear the president say that, but maybe they tune in next week or they see a clip of, of Biden's uh, acceptance speech. Maybe they see it sometime on social media Friday morning. And Joe Biden standing up there talking about uh, his late son, Bo. He's probably going to get emotional. He's an emotional guy uh, that he, he uses that story to to relate to people. Uh, I would expect that to be part of his acceptance speech. So they're going to see a father talking about the pain that he has had in his life. He also lost, of course, uh, his wife, uh, other children here. And he's going to talk about all that in a very human way. And he's going to clearly uh, know that he's alive and he's not going to appear sleepy when, when he's talking about the pain as a father and a husband that he's gone through. So I think you're right. I think the president does create problems for himself. And, and folks are going to see this side of Joe Biden that, that a lot of people really like. And the president's going to have to find a way these next few months uh, to rebut that. So far, all the president has, uh, again, is this name calling and this conspiracy theory uh, selling. And the polls, at least right now, the polls kind of show that that's not working. Uh, Lauren, let me close with you. And again, just to pick up on a point uh, that uh, John and I are talking about in terms of expectations, you know, uh, social media has been uh, eagerly, already eagerly anticipating what that Kamala Harris, uh, Mike Pence debate is going to look like. Uh, do you think that actually those expectations work against Harris? Uh, I mean, I, sh- I think, you know, again, speaking a lot about the expectations and the prejudices against women, how she handles herself is going to be a challenge. Yeah, and obviously there's an obvious double standard there, but I would suspect that she'd do quite well. If she's anything like her performances in committee, she'll be just fine. So, I mean, there'll be the, you know, there'll be the typical, uh, I think there'll be the typical questions that she, you know, women candidates have had to deal with on the national level. Certainly uh, Hillary Clinton had to deal with them. But in the end, I actually think there'll probably be a little less of that because we have less in person. We have less, you know, of her going out and being at the diners and all that. So uh, I just think that Senator Harris has been in public life long enough to navigate all that and and come off like she's just at ease with whatever challenge is going to hit her. I, I, I just think she's used to this arena, as is the former vice president. And uh, a lot of that is going to be you know, water off the duck's back. The idea, you know, the president, as usual, is off to the side, acting like the third grader. And, you know, it may have been kind of entertaining in 2016, I guess, on some level, maybe for some people. But when there's over 160,000 people dead and over, you know, 45 million filing for unemployment, and we're looking at something that rivals the Great Depression, it's a hell of a lot less funny. And I just think that, you know, it will be somebody like, uh, you know, the former vice president, Senator Harris, that'll bring that to everybody's attention. Well, that's a great uh, place to pivot to the next topic. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. This is Chris Liu guesting for Bill Press this week. 
Today's roundtable brought to you by the Smart Union. Yes, indeed. A few years ago, they all joined together, the sheet metal workers, air workers, rail and transportation, forming the Smart Union, over 700 locals around the country. Under the leadership of President Joseph Sellers, they keep America rolling, uh, keep America moving in the air on the on uh, on the rails and uh, through buses and other mass transit systems check out their website at smart-union.org what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way (laughs) maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. This is Chris Luke, guest hosting for Bill Press. Joining me on the Reporters' Roundtable is John Bennett from The Independent, Lauren Burke from Black Press USA, and Nicholas Wu from USA Today. Let's turn our attention to COVID uh, and start with the economic relief negotiations. Last Saturday, Donald Trump signed four executive actions after the White House failed to reach an agreement with congressional Democrats. Like so many of Trump's executive orders uh, in the past, uh, these turned out to be more about photo opportunities than actually about helping Americans. Uh, Nicholas, you cover the Hill. Tell me what you're hearing. Are negotiations dead for now? That's definitely what it looks like at the moment. There's really hasn't been any movement on negotiations over the past week. And both sides have really dug in on their positions. Democrats are holding to uh, their their asks for state and local funding and uh, and an increased uh, unemployment benefit. Republicans are seeking to hold the line at around a trillion dollars. Um, and so in a particularly dramatic moment, we saw uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, pull out a chart yesterday at her press conference to talk about the differences in their proposals, while at the same time, 
Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was on the Senate floor uh, slamming Democrats for, for not coming to any kind of compromise with them. So, I mean, e even looking at the calendar, uh, it makes it unlikely that we'll get a deal in the next few weeks. We have the conventions coming up and then, you know, we get ever closer to an election. So uh, the, the desire of both sides to compromise here is really, um, it's, it's unlikely that that'll happen. And, um, and as for now, things are still... Uh, John, you spent a lot of time over at the White House. What What is their take on all of this? Or is their sense the economy can sufficiently recover on its own without additional stimulus? Or are they happy having this political battle? They're always happy having a political battle, even if it's one that, that they end up losing. That's their default setting. That's the president's default setting. That's certainly Mark Meadows, the chief of staff who was was injected into these negotiations uh, by the president himself and, and conservative folks that the president talks to, to, to kind of, you know, be a, a check on Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who has cut some deals with, with Speaker Pelosi and, and, and Chuck Schumer. Um, and, you know, I've said for years that, that you can't write, you can't really write a bill for, for Mark Meadows and, and say a Susan Collins over in the Senate. I think we're seeing some of that here, but um, you know, the Republicans and, and the president get and deserve a lot of criticism uh, for these talks stalling and their role in that. But I think Democrats uh, deserve some criticism, too. They, they went to their own extreme here. You, you, had, you had two different versions of absurdity trying to get to common ground that doesn't exist and I, I don't think the Democrats were very realistic. I understand going in and, and holding out and, and you want to get everything you can get. But, you know, they, they didn't get they haven't given any real, real ground here either. Neither side has. So there is, as always on Capitol Hill, there is plenty of blame to spread around to everyone. And Lauren, let me turn to you. I mean, obviously, there are there are there's the political battle that's going on, but there's a very real human cost to all of this. It's the people who aren't going to see enhanced unemployment benefits. It's the teachers and police and firefighters who might be laid off because their states have run out of money. Uh, it is uh, the lack of assistance for small businesses. Talk about what this means and, and, and how you think this plays out in the political in the presidential campaign. Well, I think it plays out badly uh, for the Republicans. I think, frankly, this entire situation sets up a possible realignment in our politics, including the Senate flipping. And when you have differences in policy, and I, I do agree uh, a little bit with the sentiment that the, the Democrats certainly went big. Certainly, when you when you have sixty billion in there for hunger and food assistance, and the GOP has two hundred fifty thousand. Those are huge differences. You have anti-eviction uh, assistance at $100 billion and the, the GOP has zero. Uh, but I think people are growing extremely tired of governance by PR and governance by, you know, uh, names that I want to call my opponent. And unfortunately, this version, this era of the Republican Party is, for whatever reason, not interested in actual governance. And I just think that when you have a crisis going on, it becomes so obvious to everybody. Uh, you can see it in the polls. You can see it in in the, the white women suburban uh, voter numbers. 
Uh, you see it in these. There was a story a few days ago, um, you know, typical food line story. It was in Dallas and the cars are lined up around the, the block. At some point, that's got to catch up with you. That's going to catch up with the Republican Party. And I, I can't imagine that the time is not now. Uh, and even though it is true that the Democrats probably went bigger than they should have with some of the numbers that they put forward uh, to deal with this crisis, the Republicans don't really have a governing uh, ideology right now. They just are governing by stunt and press conference. And everybody thinks it's cute to have your press secretary, you know, in the in the briefing room, sniping at the press. When there's 160,000, we're looking at almost 200,000 people who could die from COVID by the end of the year. So it, it, it has got to catch up with itself. I would suspect it's going to catch up with itself on November 3rd. And we will see what happens after that. Uh, this idea that the president is going to stay in office, you know, I have a feeling that the military district of Washington is going to have something to say about that at noon on January 20. Um, but at any rate, I, I do think that this is a this is a calamity for the Republican Party. Well, let me talk to another potential calamity coming down the road, and that's uh, school reopenings. Uh, we are now in mid-August, and around the country, parents, teachers, and elected officials uh, really are at odds. It's it's political, cultural uh, odds about what the right approach is. Uh, this week, there was a morning consult poll that found that fifty nine percent of registered voters oppose fully reopening K-12 schools at the beginning of the year. Uh, these numbers are up, uh, are creeping up from where they were last month. And we've all seen the photos of school hallways where students aren't wearing masks or practicing social distancing. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing a growing number of schools that are being forced to close or quarantine right after they reopen. Uh, and there are some elected officials that are uh, comparing this to a, a military fight. Let's play a clip we have of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The mission to a Navy SEAL operation. Just as the SEALs surmounted obstacles to bring Osama bin Laden to justice, so too would the Martin County school system find a way to provide parents with a meaningful choice of in-person instruction or continued distance learning. <laughs> you know, uh, John, let me start with you. I mean, this should really be based on public health considerations, but like everything else involving the coronavirus, it's a political battle. Uh, how do you how do you see this battle kind of playing out? And uh, are, are there really any winners in this or are we just kind of all losing? Oh, boy, I don't even know where to start with the governor's analogy there. Um, if, if if we continue down his logic stream, if, if there is some logic in there, I guess we can try to find it. You know, this if coronavirus is Osama bin Laden and uh, the Navy SEALs haven't gotten very far, uh, then Osama bin Laden would, would be alive and well, at least well for, for, for bin Laden. He had some, some health issues. But, he, I mean, I guess he's at, at this point, he's, in, he's holed up at Tora Bora and still calling the shots, and al-Qaeda is still a very lethal enemy. Uh, I don't know what the governor's talking about, frankly. Uh, this thing is spreading. The death toll's climbing it's a it's a huge political issue. Um, I don't even really know where to go with with what Governor DeSantis uh, said. Uh, but I can tell you at the White House, they love it. They loved it. They 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 love when they love Governor DeSantis. President Trump really likes him. They like when he talks like this. I wouldn't be surprised um, if we hear from the president today. We're not scheduled to at least right now. But 
I wouldn't be surprised if if the president picks that line of thinking up and we hear it, you know, Monday or whenever he does another coronavirus briefing. You know, and there is a contrast here, um, you know, and it's one of the things that uh, uh, Vice President Biden talked about this week. We have a clip of him providing an alternate vision. Every single American should be wearing a mask when they're outside for the next three months at a minimum. Every governor should mandate mandatory mask wearing. The estimates by the experts are it will save over 40,000 lives in the next three months. And uh, it's not about your rights. It's about your responsibilities as an American. So, Nicholas, let me turn to you. It's the battle in, not just about masks, not just about social distancing. It's a battle of, you know, rights and responsibilities versus freedoms. Uh, how does this play out politically? Well, this is an issue that converges on a bunch of different uh, factors this fall. You have, you know, so many Americans are debating um, whether or not they, to send their kids back to school. Uh, in person or not, and uh, you know, coming up on the election, and it's coming up on the election as well. So, um, I, I, like you mentioned, it's very much becoming a political hot button issue that we'll see both sides uh, try to spin either which way. But you know, one line that really stuck with me from a uh, hearing on the Hill last week um, on reopening schools or not uh, was from. Arne Duncan, uh, President Obama's education secretary, who, who said that, you know, given the way the fight against the coronavirus has gone now, in pushing schools to reopen, he said, you know, we're asking 15,000 school districts to become 15,000 healthcare centers without any real resources or expertise. And I think, you know, when we talk about this issue of reopening schools, it's important to remember, you know, what the actual factors on the ground are. You know, does, does a school have... Uh, the um, resources it needs to reopen, what's the actual situation with coronavirus like, and you know, to divorce some of the ideology from that whole conversation and really focus in on the facts on the ground. Lauren, let me talk to you about this broader cultural battle. And look, I get, you know, in, in, in red America, they look at these things different from blue America. Do, do you think opinions will change when parents start to see their kids' health and safety being endangered? Uh, or will they basically dismiss it like, look, yeah, you know, the, you know, my kid got sick or we have to quarantine, but, you know, he didn't really, like, he didn't have to go to the hospital. It's not a big deal. This is overblown. These are kind of the risks we take uh, in, in, in our society. Well, one would think that if there was something that was going to sharpen the mind about how uh, coronavirus is handled. It's sending your kids to school at a time when almost every other institution has either shut down or had their employees work from home, uh, including the, the White House. I mean, it's this idea that, oh, you're supposed to send your kids to school, but we'll be doing work uh, you know, from home for the most part. And you're watching that. I don't care if you're in a red state or a blue state. Common sense will tell you that that's going to be highly problematic, particularly with younger kids. Uh, we, we, but then, then, then again, we saw with older kids as well, the, the, the high school in Georgia that, you know, someone took a picture of the hallway and it was crowded and then they shut down. You know, I mean, part of the challenge of being a journalist in this moment is having to feign like, you're objectively looking at something, which of course you should be if you are in the realm of objective journalism, and having to admit that what the real truth is, 
you know, people like Ron DeSantis are, are not very smart. They are robots for Donald Trump, and they will do whatever Donald Trump tells them to do. And so anybody who is watching that, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you know, your, your sense of what is smart in this situation has got to take over from who your elected leaders are in this moment. You know, I mean, it's common sense. These people, and you know, I'm from New York, and uh, uh, frankly, as a New Yorker, uh, Donald Trump is one of our, I think, greatest embarrassments ever. But I mean, the fact is, these people are real estate people running the country and having absolutely no idea what they're doing. So anyone who hasn't figured that out by now and let their own, you know, judgment take over is is fooling themselves. And I'm sure that nobody is going to be dumb enough to risk their kids over Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Uh, I want to wrap up this topic and move to uh, our final segment, but let me just do a quick lightning round. Uh, the other now new literally political football uh, is the reopening of college football and whether that happens at all. We've already had several conferences that have decided they're not playing. Uh, you've got people on both sides that are politicizing it. Uh, so the quick question, and I just need a quick answer, is uh, does this have any political impact at all? And if so, who does it help and who does it hurt? Let me start with you, John. I think it does. I'm a huge college football fan. Uh, I am I am torn about this issue. This is the one coronavirus issue that I am selfishly torn about. Um, this was actually going to be my topic a little later, but uh, <laughs> we can do this now. Um, what we're seeing here with this college football debate is it, it's this is this has been injected now it, this urban versus rural north versus south everything seems like it goes through this filter now you have you have uh, the the big conferences uh, to the north and to the west they've shut it down at least for a fall season and 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 down south where and I'm from the south and we love our college football we love football the SEC the ACC the Big Twelve the Sun Belt where my beloved App State Mountaineers play. Um, those conferences are, are going to try to do this thing in the, in the fall. Uh, but this is just another North versus South urban versus rural issue. And boy, isn't everything lately. <laughs> uh, Nick, what is the uh, political impact of any of this college football? Well, I think the biggest impact is the continued sense that things are not normal. You know, fall is usually a huge deal for, uh, folks back home. I'm a Michigan native and, you know, people go crazy for Michigan football, but with the Big Ten not playing, not only do you lose a huge part of the, I guess, cultural landscape, but you also uh, can cause a huge budget hit to universities that um, would otherwise fundraise a lot off of their college sports. So this is definitely something that helps people uh, remember that things aren't normal. And which way that goes, you know, depends on how uh, uh, both sides play it. Lauren, final thoughts to you on this? You know what? I I am not a big follower of college football. I, I follow the NFL, and they are going to do apparently something, I think. But, you know, it's hard. I think it's very hard not to have the, you know, the distraction and the fun of watching sports. So we do, of course, have baseball, but it's just kind of eerie without the audience. I mean, it's, it's there, but it's just not the same. And... I know so many college football fans are hurting right now, and I can totally understand that because it you definitely need something. You know, particularly when you're at home most of the day, 
and have to sort of distract yourself by going for a walk or going for a drive or something. And it, it's definitely, I don't think it has that much of a political thing. I just have, think it has a cultural and social uh, thing. It's jarring. It's jarring not to have some of these, you know, bigger uh, things that we enjoy, particularly in the fall. You know, uh, I, I will wrap up this segment with one of my favorite quotes. It's from uh, Washington Nationals reliever Sean Doolittle, who's been very outspoken about the health and safety concerns of players. He says, uh, sports are the reward of a functioning society. Uh, with that, uh, let us go to our usual segment, which is story of the week. Each week, we ask our panelists to come up with a story that caught their eye. It could be something serious, funny, or just random. Uh, Nicholas, what caught your eye this past week? So what caught my eye uh, were the whole raft of stories, of which actually um, I'm working on one now as well, about what Senator Kamala Harris's pick as the vice presidential nominee means for Asian American voters. Of, of course, you know her her pick is uh, uh, quite a few firsts, uh, first um, African American, also first Asian American person. Um, on a major presidential ticket. And so I, I was particularly struck by a uh, Chicago Tribune column about it and uh, what, what people had to say about, um, you know, now that uh, Senator Harris has been picked, you know, there'll be a whole generation of kids who uh, were named Kamala and, and had no, you know, people weren't able to pronounce their names before, but now they can. And I think that's something really impactful for a whole generation of Asian Americans who will see themselves in someone like Senator Harris, regardless of party, and, and see that uh, you can go to that height. That's a great piece. Lauren, what caught your eye this week? Uh, you know, what caught my eye was something that a friend of mine did, Roland Martin. Uh, he sort of blew up Zank Unger of the Young Turks over the issue of, you know, Zank got up out there with this whole idea that Kamala Harris represents the establishment, and the establishment always gets what it wants. And they got Joe Biden, and you know, obviously he's a Bernie Sanders fan. And uh, <laughs> Roland Martin came back by saying, look, you know, progressives are not the ones that win for the Democratic Party. It's actually black voters that get the Democratic Party in power. And so for you to be whining about Kamala Harris misses the fact that uh, it is black voters who are more loyal to the party than progressives. And they, that sort of set off a very interesting argument. I didn't really actually think that much about. Uh, but it was sort of entertaining, even though it was playing out. It was playing out virtually. It was actually playing out on Instagram. So it wasn't the fun and excitement of a live debate between the two. But it did catch my eye. And I, it was a sort of moment of entertainment as I was reading it back and forth. Uh, so, John, we sort of stole yours already. You can you can pass or you can expand on it or you can throw something else into the mix. I will throw uh, uh, speaking of distraction, I thought Lauren uh, very eloquently explained why sports are important. And, and she's right. It is eerie watching uh, these baseball games in these mammoth stadiums that are empty. Um, but I, I usually use this segment to talk about sports. It, it's a distraction for me. I'm a big sports fan. And la uh, yesterday in New York, um, Nationals ace Steven Strasburg, ace pitcher, was not pitching. He was sitting in the stands watching the game at City Field. They were playing the New York Mets. Uh, he was sitting in Section 121. He was socially distanced, uh, just kind of watching the game. And he was actually thrown out of the game for yelling at uh, home plate umpire Carlos Torres. Um, Mr. Strasburg was not happy with the strike zone and was letting the umpire know it. 
And um, uh, Strasburg, not really an emotional guy. He's been something of a robot during his career, uh, but he was tossed, and it was quite something to see. And it was a lighter moment, and Strasburg had a laugh about it. And uh, speaking of distractions, that was a nice distraction yesterday. And it's certainly one of the downsides of an empty stadium. You could hear basically everyone <laughs> yelling That's right. in the stadium. That's right. Well, look, that wraps up this week's Bill Press Reporters Roundtable. I'd like to thank my guests, uh, John Bennett from The Independent, Lauren Burke from Black Press USA, and Nicholas Wu from USA Today. Before we go, a programming note. On the next Bill Press pod, we'll have part three of our series on the dangerous case of Donald Trump. We talked to eight psychiatrists and psychologists about the deteriorating mental capacity of the president of the United States. Harper West is one of the authors of the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess President. She explains how Donald Trump is driven by shame. He has no conscience. People who have that antisocial type of personality, um, they don't experience guilt and shame. They don't have any remorse. So they're going to say and do whatever pleases him in that moment to get people to do whatever he wants or to get approval. Again, very short-sighted and self-centered. Shame is a primal emotion. It's deeply tied to our, our fears of inadequacy and, and fears of being socially rejected. And so it, it's very, very powerful. Many people call shame the master emotion. It's part of a group of self-conscious emotions that help us behave in pro-social ways. Um, but shame and fear are very closely affiliated. And unfortunately, in people like Trump, he has a lot of inadequacies, a lot of fears of being um, embarrassed and humiliated. And he's adopted a lot of very unhealthy behaviors and responses to this. We call it poor shame tolerance. And this is what hijacks his brain. He feels inadequate and then he engages in all kinds of unhealthy coping mechanisms, so to speak, um, largely driven by fear and anger. And then he acts out and that's why he can't do the right thing because he's being taken over by this very primal emotion of, of shame and a fear and he cannot control himself. More in this frightening reality that our president is emotionally incapable of doing his job. That's on the next Bill Press Pod coming Tuesday. Subscribe today. You won't want to miss it. That's it for today. I'm Chris Liu. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Bill will be back next week.